0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Ron Carson, CEO and founder of the Carson Group, started way back in 1983, uh, practically in his dorm room in Nebraska, has been one of the leaders in the RIA space, not just through Carson Wealth, the asset management business side, but through Carson Partners, which is a a sort of TAMP plus for independent RIAs who are looking for succession planning and help on the back end of their business with technology, as well as Carson Coaching, which is a program that came about in response to demand from RIAs who were looking for a little more help and a little more uh, assistance in in running their, their businesses. If you're at all interested in the business half of how asset management is changing, the impact of technology, the impact of alterations to the fiduciary rule, the general trend towards fiduciaries and away from commission-based brokers, you're gonna find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. With no further ado, my conversation with Ron Carson.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: My extra special guest this week is Ron Carson. He is the founder and CEO of the Carson Group, which covers several different companies, including Carson Wealth, and we'll discuss the different business lines. Ron is also the author of Proven in the Trenches and most recently, The Sustainable Edge, two uh, bestsellers on Amazon. The Carson Group manages well over $12 billion for about 34,000 families. Ron Carson, welcome to Masters in Business. Barry, thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here today. So uh, I'm kind of intrigued by your history and your story. This kind of a Michael Dell background. You, you started Carson in a University of Nebraska dorm room in 1983. Am, am I exaggerating that at all? No, I
2: grew up uh, just north of Omaha on a farm. I thought I was going to be a farmer my entire life. And those that remember the early 80s, you know, interest rates, half percent, farmers were going broke, my parents went broke, and uh, I was forced to, to do something else. And I was reading a Money Magazine article, talked about the top professions of the future, and one was to become a CFP. And uh, so I thought, you know what, that's what I'll do. And I literally ran, three years ago, I was at the Napa Valley Wine Auction, and, and there was a, a pre-event cocktail party, and some lady said, oh, you're from Nebraska, what do you do? And I told her, she goes, well, how did you get into that? And I said, well, I read this article. Her face lit up, and she goes, you're not going to believe this, but I wrote that article. And I'm like, well, then I owe you my career.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing. And I go back to 1983. You and I are similar ages, and when I was in college in 83, I was trying to scrape up beer money. I wasn't thinking about, I know, let me launch a new business in an area that really nobody else is in. You you had to be one of the first independent advisors. Is, is that a fair statement? I, I absolutely was. And in those days, it wasn't even viewed. I
2: didn't know this. I mean, I was totally an unconscious and competent. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I like the idea of being independent and, uh, but there wasn't a lot of places to even go. You know, the broker dealer community was super small, didn't have a lot of technology, sold a lot of product, but that's how I got started. And, you know, to this day, it was, uh, it was a great, great growing up experience. I feel like I grew up, you know, with the, the advisory world. I remember. In 1994, you know, eleven short years after starting, I was so excited when you know I realized I could become an RIA, and uh, and truly be a, a true fiduciary for for clients. And 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 as you well know, um, our space has changed dramatically, you know, several times over the last 30 years,
1: to say the very least. So so what was it? Surrounded by farms going broke with interest rates at 21 percent that made you say, I know, I'm going to focus on financial planning?
2: So initially, someone told me, so I went down to Nebraska to play football. And I, uh, in my first part of the season, I ended up becoming injured. I was, you know, shirted, And, but I, I came from a family where, you know, my parents were struggling. I didn't have any money. And someone said, you can sell life insurance and make money. And I thought, well, I'd always had a knack for selling things, even as a kid. I went to auction school, so I sold people and let me do an auction for their junk. And, you know, I had a little popcorn business. I had a lot of little businesses. I always had this entrepreneurial um, spirit. And for six months, I just called out of of a phone book. And Amoco Life had just come out with life insurance in those days. E.F. Hutton had come out with the Universal Life. And I didn't like trying to talk someone into buying insurance, whether they needed it or not. And right. as, shortly after that, I thought, I want to get my securities license. And I was fascinated by uh, the stock market and, and you know, the capital markets and how they functioned. And it just, you know, I feel like I have hardly worked a day in my life. First few years were tough. There's a couple times I thought I, was, I hated I was going to quit the business. But once I got some, I'll call it, you know, epiphany around. Just you know, taking care of people and really putting people's interests first. Not only did the the profession become a lot more fun, but I grew incredibly fast, and and I've always stayed in this in this line of work. And I've always um I've always been a non-traditionalist. I've always thought of different ways of doing things, and uh, and so it allowed me to not only be in a in a business that I enjoyed, but it gave me a lot of you know creative space. In order to try, you know, to try different things.
1: I love that phrase that you hardly, you've never worked a day in your life. My wife used to tell people I'm gainfully unemployed, which I guess is <laughs> sort of the same spirit. So, so since you started back in '83, you're coming up on 40 years soon. Do you recall who was your first client? Do you remember the first person who said, "Ron, you seem like a trustworthy guy." Here's all the money I have in the world. Try not to screw it up.
2: I do. Um, I, I I, still, I was. They they owned a. Um, they owned a drugstore in the middle of um, Nebraska. It was a small small town, and I remember them writing me a check, and uh, and I and I pulled. You know, I pulled out of town. Of course, there was only gravel roads in and out of this small town, and I remember pulling my car over. I got out and I ran around it like six times, jumping up and down. You would have thought I won the Powerball lottery. And those, uh, the the um, they he passed on shortly after they became clients, maybe a couple of years. And then she was a client until probably about five, six, seven years ago. And then their children are clients to today. And but that was that was the very very first one. You'll never forget the first one.
1: Yeah, to say the least, that, that's a great story. Let's talk a little bit about this division of the Carson Group. Tell us what is Carson Wealth and how does it fit into the bigger umbrella organization, which seems to have uh, a number of moving parts. So
2: we have Carson Group and then Carson Wealth, Barry, is the very, very first you know part of Carson Group. It's our retail offering, so we're on a registered investment advisor. We manage, you know, close to 13 billion in assets for, you know, several thousand families around the United States. And our mission is to be the most trusted for financial advice. And if I'm driving down the road and I don't know anything about our profession, I'm listening to this, I'm like, well, doesn't everybody, you know, want to do that? And I would say maybe, you know, how many, I don't know how many people consciously think of it, but we're in a profession, unfortunately, that, that you know, and financial services is a huge category, Barry, but sixty five percent of Americans do not believe that their advisor or the institution they represent were going to put their interests ahead of their own. And that's really the mission of what we're trying to do. Nobody owns the space and it's so fragmented to this day. There's 288,000 financial advisors. There's roughly a half a million in the mid-90s of the 288 today. Nearly 111,000 are going to retire. Uh, we call them rich and tired. Most of them have made a lot of money, and they just don't want to keep up with all the technological change. And we see that as a real opportunity to um, grow market share, but do it the right way. You know, we've we have quite a few offices around the country. We have You know, our proven process, we have very specific ways of of delivering, you know, the value proposition. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I feel that we have a real shot at owning or co-owning that in the future. You know, you think about Vanguard owns, and as far as a brand, low-cost investing, Fidelity owns, you know, the retirement plan market. um, But no one really owns the trusted wealth management market.
1: Quite interesting. You alluded to something that I want to circle back with you because you went by it so quickly. 65% of the public do not believe that their financial institution has their best interest. Yes, and Barry, to this day,
2: most people do not know. So I travel around the country pre-COVID. I probably give 60, 70 talks a year, and, and many of those to retail Um, clients of ours. And I always ask the question, who in here can tell me the difference between a fiduciary and a broker? And anywhere from zero to one hand will go up. I mean, I was speaking at a CEO institution last uh, year. There were 65 CEOs from all over the world. Not one of them knew the difference between a fiduciary and a broker. And, And to this day, a broker is not required to put your interest first. It's only suitability. That's it. I mean, if they disclose it in a you know, 1,000-page prospectus, and it says they can do it and they can charge it. It makes it, quote-unquote, legal. And, and we have a saying, Carson, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. And I think we still have a massive gap between understanding fiduciaries versus brokers. And I'll open those talks and say, listen, if you get this one thing right, if you understand a true fiduciary versus a broker, and you pass it on to someone you love and they get it, You'll give a true gift that will give for the rest of their life.
1: Now, here's one of the really interesting things about the RIA industry. Over the past 20 years, a lot of who we think of as big brokers, UBS, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, a big portion of their employees have moved either to be hybrid broker RIAs or just registered investment advisors, RIAs. Is the fiduciary side of the street, is the fee-only, no-conflict of interest versus the brokerage sales commission side, is this side winning? Do you see that as the trend that's taking place? I do. I mean, the trend is accelerating, Barry. And let me just say
2: something, because I think this is a fact that gets lost on a lot of people, is everybody has a conflict of interest right? You can't help it. I'll I'll use an example. Let's say you've got an an RIA who has a $100 million under management, and his largest client has $50 million with him. And his largest client comes and says, hey, I'm thinking about taking $50 million out and buying this business. That advisor has a conflict because he realizes if he loses that client's assets, he may not be able to stay in business. But we all know that the conflict is, are you going to do – remember what I, I said, put the client's interests ahead of their own interest. So this advisor to say, listen, yes, let's do that and give him the best advice, even at the demise of his own company. Is It's a conflict, but it's at least a conflict that the client, I think, consciously knows or going in, am I going to get the best advice because this could hurt his business? And there's also conflict very, unfortunately, even on the fiduciary side, uh, more, more so that are more nuanced, like cash. You know, before when we back, we had yield, there are some fiduciaries that in order to, they would not take the time or effort to sweep a client into the highest yielding cash and let it sit somewhere where they weren't earning a lot of cash. That's a conflict, especially if you've got a custodian that's going to charge you or the client some additional fees if they're not making the return on the account. I still think our profession has quite a ways to go. The fiduciary is the future, but I think even as fiduciaries we can get better at putting the client's interest first and being more transparent.
1: I love that story of the sweep. And some time ago, um, I know you must have a ton of war stories. I do also. We figured out, you know, very often you run with a little bit of cash in the account in case a client asks for a disbursement or something, whether it's 40 or 50 or 60 basis points, it's something relatively small. And very often when a market is going higher, it's a slight drag on performance. And we figured out a long time ago, it was much better to sweep the cash into one of the higher-yielding money market accounts, we figured out, we did the math, we analyzed it, we sat and played with it and said, net, net, this creates a few hundred thousand dollars of positive gains across all our clients, but we're relatively small. A shop like yours, sweeping cash into a higher-yielding money market account, have you ever sat and figured out the, the, the math on how much additional gains that generates for clients yeah last year alone
2: we estimated you know it was in the high single digit you know seven eight million dollars wow. you well know, directly to our clients because we 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 did the sweep and Barry how crazy is I think about banks I'll pick on banks for a second most clients if you go do you love your bank you go yeah I love my bank well, what are you getting on your cash and your savings and most of them are getting you know almost a zero nothing yet the right. bank can turn around and get, you know, let's, let's take 19 of the Fed funds rate. I say, can you imagine if they were crediting you that? And at the end of the year, they said, hey, we want our fee to be 95% of what you made. <laughs> you know, clients, if they were writing that check back, would go crazy. But because they never see it, it's this huge hidden drag on their performance that they really don't consciously think about. And that's one of the things we want our clients to think of every single penny they're paying, how they're paying it. And, and we, you know, and I know, we're, big planners, you know, people will make an investment in their future, but no one wants to pay something and not see um, value beyond a doubt for the investment we're asking them to make. And I think cash is a great example of that.
1: You know, I want to follow up with what you're saying with the issue of free trading. And let me point out, neither of us have a horse in this race. If trading is $8 or if trading is free, it's essentially the same thing as far as I'm concerned with the average portfolio size. However, when you look below the surface of all the companies offering free trading, that cost of carry, that return on cash is where they make all their money. And it turns out free trading, when you look at the numbers, is pretty expensive. There is, Barry. And then you've got order flow payment, an
2: invisible tax that, you know, consumers don't see. Like I said, there's a lot I think we can still do as a profession to become even more consumer friendly,
1: you know, than we are today. I don't disagree at all. Let's talk a little bit about your coaching business. What is Carson Coaching? So Barry and and like I
2: guess I started a retail in 1983 and 1993 I was giving a talk in boston at the um, organization at the time called the iafp i don't know if you remember that international association of financial planners and i was talking about the different things i was doing in my business and two gentlemen came up and said hey would you coach us and i said sure <laughs> and that's how my coaching business started in in 1993 i launched um carson coaching um, i had seven people come out to omaha nebraska and I, you know, and we've and we've had quite a following over the years. I mean, we have around, you know, 12, 1,300 offices today that we provide um, consulting services and coaching services to. We have tens of thousands of alumni people that coming in and out of. They'll be in our program for a year or two, come back out, come back in again, and a lot of a lot of independent advisors are they feel like they're isolated islands out there and they really want to have community. They want to have best practices. They want to have a place that they can bounce ideas off of. You know, today we have, I think we have 11 executive business coaches that specialize in a variety of different areas. And, uh, and, and I have learned a ton from having our coaching organization. I always like to say, you know, we're better together. None of us, is as smart individually as we are collectively. And just this group has pushed me to get better. I've learned so much from them, but it's really a cool community that's all committed to uh, continuous improvement.
1: Quite interesting. When I was kicking around your uh, website, I came across a page of Carson Group Partners. Are those folks affiliated with Carson Coaching? Are they affiliated with Carson Wealth? And by the way, that page was just... Scrolling, scrolling—it's so hundreds of people long. So coaching is different
2: than partners. So we have our third. So we have our retail. We have our coaching, and then we have Carson Group partners. And what I learned through the coaching business, Barry, and you, I think you will appreciate this as many years you've been around, being a mentor to people either directly or indirectly, is that old saying: "You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink." Is right, right. You, you can give them all the ideas. But very few people – I used to get questions all the time, like, Ron, how can you give everybody your secrets? I said, well, first of all, I want our profession to be better, and I believe it's us against the evil empire out there, the conflicted model. But number two, most of them won't do anything with it, and it's not a real competitive threat. And that's why Partners was launched in 12, is a lot of these clients of ours would say, can't you do it for us? So then we evolved into a model today – where we are a succession solution. So a lot of these firms have become Carson. We've bought them, or we own a minority, or we own a majority. We are very flexible. But Uh we do their technology. We do their trading. We do their compliance. We do their marketing. We do everything with the exception of actually sitting down and meeting with the client. We have CPAs. We have attorneys on our team. We have a, a trust department. I mean, we have insurance department where we can provide all of that in one single pane of think of an amazon experience and most of the smaller independent advisors can't begin they're so stuck in the whirlwind of trying to run their business day to day they can't really emerge and then think creatively and proactively and that's really what carson partners does for them. And we do it together. It's bottoms up innovation. They come up with some amazing things that that's what we implement into the model. But we also ideate top down because there's a lot of none of us knew the iPhone was possible until Steve Jobs came up with it. Right now, we all love it. Can't imagine a world without it. But so we've also ideated stuff that they're going, wow, I didn't even know this was possible. And it, it's been really an exciting partnership with our partners around the country.
1: So this is a TAP. This is a full turnkey asset management uh, program. Is that right? It is. Correct. Yes. But a lot more than
2: just a camp, Barry. It's, It's everything else. I mean, literally, we will write their RFP. We will present to an endowment or foundation. It's not like, oh, they have access. Our team in Omaha is their team. And if you go to our partner's website, you'll see that, you know, a lot of them are branded Carson. Some of them continue to go under their own brand. But it's, you know, I think of a Tampa providing just asset management. That's one of of 10 services we provide to our partner offices.
1: Quite intriguing. How many different offices are you working with with Carson Partners? Because it looked like right now.
2: I have 135 offices.
1: Yeah. Did you ever expect... Coaching and partnership to develop into two completely different businesses from financial planning, obviously related, but totally different um, aspects of the business. Very no, and I never expected the success I've had. I mean,
2: I've surrounded myself with really great people, and it's really their success that has allowed this to happen. And no, I never dreamt in a million years that you know we would be doing what we're doing and and because of that you know Carson Group is really focused on impact you know local impact community impact national impact global impact and we spend you know considerable amount of, or I said so we make big investments you know my wife and I make big investments into our communities and so does Carson and and I and I can't say I can't talk about our success without talking about what I feel are our, our personal obligation is, is to, you know, to lift people up that, uh, that struggle. And you know, I think when I got started in the 80s, um, you, if you worked hard, you could go out and, and you could make it. And there's parts of the world today, and especially there's even parts here in the U.S., it's really hard you know, to emerge. And so you know, with that success comes, a, um, I think, an obligation that we've embraced you know, to have as big an impact on our community as we possibly can.
1: Quite fascinating. So the future of the asset management industry, you talked earlier about technology and how challenging that is. How has technology changed the landscape currently? And what does this mean going forward? So Barry, I go to a place called
2: Singularity University. I've done it for the last two years. And it's out in Palo Alto and it's Peter Diamantis and Frank Kurzweil and, you know, just people that are talking about the things that are that are coming. And Frank made a comment two years ago, he goes, you know, the um, technological change is nothing up to this point. It's been a trickle. And the avalanche is near. And I share that view, I am seeing what's going on with artificial intelligence, with data. um, And I see a world where uh, and a lot this is controversial, right? I mean when you when you you know pro, like for example, I have three children, my son, not on social media, hates google and and because they you know they they read our emails, and i 'm on the opposite end of it it 's like I love it, get to know me as well as you can know me, and help me <laughs> help make my life easier. so I understand the listeners are going to fall in one of those categories, probably most of them fall somewhere in between and so we made big investments at carson last year and the year before into what's known as a data warehouse so we have all of our data we have very clean data and the other thing that's cool about that is we call we used to say that we have a high degree of iq and that's implementation quotient because when it's all said and done more gets said than gets done almost in, sure. in every business but now mm-hmm. it's aq as well and that's adaptability quotient because none of us can possibly anticipate all the amazing technologies are going to emerge you know, out of the garage, so to speak. And, and so if, if you are, in the old traditional way of having technology, if you were going to switch from you know, one application to another, it was a major migration. I mean, it was a big deal to make the switch. Well, now at Carson Group, we've got a data warehouse. All we have to do is consume what's known as an API, not to get too technical for sure. listeners. But think of, a, think of it as of just plugging in a hose. And all that information can flow to any application that we want. And we can switch out an application overnight. And I'll use Amazon as an example. You're an Amazon user, right, Barry?
1: For 20-something years already.
2: And how's the experience overall? How would you rate it, scale of one to five?
1: Pretty rare that it's not a five, each time, every time.
2: And, And Barry, tell me this. From the time you started using Amazon to today, how many different
1: technologies were swapped out behind the scenes that you weren't even aware of. Oh God, it's got to be countless. Uh, biggest of all, Amazon Web Services. Look at how they took their own infrastructure and powered so many others. So to me, it's just a web interface, but there has to be a bajillion things going on behind the scenes.
2: And you don't even care, right? If you could care less. You just want to have a great experience, right? You go on. It works. It just works. That's all you care about. It just works. That's the future of financial services. You know, what we believe is we've built this single pane of glass for the consumer to have everything they want, like Amazon. It's super simple to use and to see and to interact. And that is that is the future. But you better have great data because I believe the risk always has been, always will be, as far as ruining someone's um, financial plan, is a consumer doing the wrong thing at the wrong time? Why do they do that? Because they get caught up in noise and, and everything going on, and they make really poor, knee-jerk reaction kind of moves. For example, let's talk about Donald Trump. You know how many people wanted to just go to cash before Trump got elected, and the market had a major run-up? You know how many people went to cash in the middle of COVID because they said, the world can never recover from this, or at least for the next, next several years? When in fact, if they would have just had the risk budget right and then taking technology a step further, we get to know when a client's logging on, what's going on in their life, what is reading. And we can anticipate now moves that they're going to make that might be counter to what's in their best interest. So we can get out ahead of it. We can have a meeting with them. We can talk about it. And this is just the very, very beginning. I saw, I saw a technology. I spoke at um, Tiburon last year in New York. And I talked about the future of artificial intelligence, and a lady comes up to me and says, I'm developing that. you got to see it. And and I brought this back to my team, and they're like, well, we don't think anybody's that close. They did a demo for us, Barry. We were asking this engine financial planning questions, and it was giving us answers, and we thought we were talking to another person on the other end. It was that really? good. And this stuff is going to continue to get better and better. Just imagine today, if, I, if we sit down with a client, we got lots of technologies. I mean, it used to take me a weekend, really, to get ready for a big client and review and all the things we needed to do and talking to their tax professionals and their attorney and their insurance agent. Now, all of that stuff is fed in, and we can be ready and have a really productive meeting in, in an hour. But the future is all of this stuff, tax, legal, risk cash flow all of that's going to be looked at 24 hours a day 365 days a year and there's going to be alpha actions that can be generated because of the technology that's the future of financial services and it will be mind-blowing the kind of value we can we can add and and the consumer is being expected to they they want an amazon and netflix a google kind of experience. And that's what we're going to have to deliver. I don't think each, you know, financial advisors look at each other as their competition. It's really those experiences that we're going to continuously be compared against and compete against in the future.
1: So when the first sets of the various automated advisors rolled out, people call them robo advisors, but I think that's a bad moniker. But shops like Betterment and Wealthfront There was a general backlash. Oh, this can never do what an advisor can do. Do you think that eventually we'll get to the point where, hey, Ubers will be self-driving cars and financial advice will be some bot telling you what is best for your financial circumstances?
2: I think it's going to be a combination. So my view, Barry, is technology at the higher end where there's more complex needs is not going to replace the financial advisor but it's going to enrich the experience for both the advisor and the consumer and allow us to do a much much better job anticipating somebody's needs before they even know they have them at the lower end i think there are people that and today i mean i went and signed up for all of those and they you know they, they just there wasn't a lot of substance there there wasn't a lot of of Uh, wow, that was really, really good, or you really helped me. But I think it's a place to get started. I think the future is going to allow people to migrate, start there, move up to a hybrid experience as their complexity grows, eventually have a full-on traditional kind of relationship. But sometimes a client can sit at that higher traditional relationship. There's not a lot of changes. There's not a lot going on. And then they go, do I really want to pay X for this? And today, the only choice they have is to fire their advisor or to have an uncomfortable conversation about reducing their fees. Under this, I think future model, they'll be able to ratchet down to a different service offering without having to go through, you know, liquidating and all the tax ramifications, all the friction, even the bid and ask friction that come with that. And, but I think technology is going to give consumers a lot more choices and a lot easier way to measure. Am I getting the value? for the investment that I'm being asked to make in a form of a um, asset management fee or financial planning fee or a retainer fee.
1: Hmm. Really interesting. You alluded to something earlier that I, I have to follow up on where you talked about a lack of young people in the industry and a number of people retiring, but I want to go a step beyond that and ask you, let, let's throw this out in three parts. The first part is, How do we get more people interested in financial planning? Secondly, how do we get more women interested in the field? And third, how do we bring more people of color into the field?
2: So we're announcing a major diversity and inclusion and next-gen initiative at Carson Berry, because I think, you know, as a profession, we've all sat around and waited for someone else to do it. And, and we, we've been experimenting at Carson with an intern-to-hire program where we've gone into colleges and had interns. And we really interview them as though they're gonna to come to work for us, and we do offer them a job at the end if they perform well. And they want the, we ask them to interview us at the same level. Uh, but we're, we are, we're building an office campus here in Omaha. We have Carson University today, so we do a lot of teaching and get young people interested. But we're gonna take that to a, a whole new level uh, the other is I mean of uh, people of color i mean you you it's been a why it's been you and I right it's been you and I <laughs> in this profession forever and right for sure it's still i still scratch my head and go why why have we not been more successful because it's people think it's a sales job it's not there's so many you know there's there's so many different tracks that you can take and by the way you gotta you got a huge tailwind behind you because we have, you know, ha- more than half of who's in it today is going to be gone. They're going to be retired. And there's more people over the age of 80 in our profession today, Barry, than under the age of 30. That's, That's
1: amazing, people,
2: right? And, and so we at Carson are going to take a major lead in this and we're going to put real money behind it. But I think it's, it's, it's uh, not only bringing people in and training them, but letting them know here's what your career path can look like. And here's one of five different paths that you can take to be successful. So I think it really is going to come with, in the trenches, education. And uh, and we're like I said, we've been working on this um, for you know a good six, eight months now, and we're we're going to be announcing I think a really exciting initiative around this in the next in the next. A few weeks there.
1: So your your timing on that is really good. Let me stick with the idea of all these over eighty, over seventy, over sixty five year old advisors that are thinking. I think you described them as as rich and tired. Um, are they going to retire? Are they going to hand off their business to somebody junior? Are they going to sell it? What does the and it's a barbell? I think it's like thirty or forty percent of the profession is over 60 maybe even more than that what are those folks going to do with their practices with their businesses it
2: depends on the advisor so there's really three different flavors out there you've got the advisor who has next gen people there they can't afford to buy in and this is where we've been successful in, in helping the next gen actually buy out the founder our chicago office is booming and this was you know, a great example of it was a CPA firm. The founder of the firm was like, "I love my clients. I want to take care of my clients, but they, but I'm not going to give my business away." So we're able to cup in and finance them buying out the next next generation. So that's one model. The other model is you get some of the same people that retire, but they're not. They don't tell their clients they retired. And what I mean by that <laughs> is, yeah, they're just you know they're working a few less hours every every year. Uh, right. on a daily basis or playing more golf, more time with the grandchildren, they're not really bringing any new clients and if they lose a client or client passes on, they're not really that aggressive about going out to the next gen. The problem with that is they're not making huge investments, you know, into the into the next, you know, into really what it takes to stay competitive, you know, in the field. And then there's a the third bucket and they just they want to exit the business. Like, I don't really care about the next gen and I don't care about my clients. I want to get the highest check possible. Um, and we see all three of those, you know, going on today. Of course, we, we focus on the, the, the next gen, someone that really cares. We did a deal recently, and um, uh, the office was in Vermont, and, you know, this guy, you know, we are never the highest price, you know, payer, we're, because we're really looking for alignment of interest. And sure. and we really want the founder to stick around and make sure that it's going to be a, a super smooth transition. And this guy, man, the due diligence and the the way it's like if I can have a hundred of these, I do a hundred of them, you know, every year. And it's been it's been a super easy transition. He's happy, his clients are happy, and he's now, as he will say, entering the third chapter, you know, of his.
1: So let's talk about that space a little bit, because I'm intrigued by it. We get people offering us firms to be sold all the time, and we're not in the business of buying firms. How do you go about finding these businesses? Do you self-finance them? And what do you think about the role of private equity in the roll-up slash acquisition space?
2: So, and let me just be clear Carson we 're building a hundred year firm, you know I started in eighty three we 're building this new building, and I said, you know i uh, I want to have shirts for everybody when we move in it's you know, a picture of the building it says for the next hundred years because we're it's we' we 're not building it to to, to sell it, uh, but a lot of people are, and that 's where private equity has actually stepped in, and we have a small minority interest in private equity. I brought them in i I plan on keeping control. Um, uh, as long as I'm adding value to the business, I've got two generations of succession. I've got my my next succession, you know, already done. Uh, private equity has been fantastic for coming in and helping us professionalize the firm. Early on, they gave us an M and A strategy that we didn't have before. Uh, but I think you know, private equity is like a mutual fund, Barry. They come in so many different flavors. Some are in. So how can we how can we change how can we financial en- engineer you to get you the highest price and get the heck out? That's a totally different relationship. And when I did the deal with private equity, I knew I was looking for some um, know-how, intellectual capital, and mm-hmm. I took a much much lower price, but I also got really patient um, capital that was willing to give us you know pretty much full control on how we run how we run our business. So, really, so, I think it depends on the type of private equity.
1: so when you I, i'm I'm talking generally so you could get as specific and detailed or thirty thousand foot view as you prefer. When you're looking to do a deal with someone in Vermont or someone in Chicago or wherever they happen to be, is that something that you're funding with private equity dollars? Is it something you drive yourself? What does that deal look like? Is it a buyout? Is it an earnout? Because I've seen a million variations, a ton of different flavors, and I want to hone in on exactly how you guys go about it.
2: Yeah. So, Barry, up to this point, so the private equity money we took was to build all the tech infrastructure that I talked about because it wasn't available, you know, within our profession. We've been fortunate up to this point we've been able to self-fund all of these but we're getting to a point matter of fact i had a team with my leader meeting with a leadership group this morning that you know we're getting enough additional deals to look at that we're probably going to have to you know either you know raise a little more um uh, sell a little equity or raise cash or we don't have any debt as an organization and maybe take a modest amount of debt you know potentially onto the balance sheet as far as terms go it depends on the seller um our our preferred deal is to have a minority interest and to have the next have us finance the next gen as far as buying 100% of a firm and them leaving that's really not the not what we want to do and if we do do that it's going to be on an earnout basis because if they're not going to Makes stick sense. around they're not going to take care of the clients we're not going to take the risk on it and the most important thing Barry in all of these deals is culture is there a cultural alignment? We are, of, of, we probably look at eight deals and do one. And it, and the reason we don't do the other seven is there's not a cultural fit. Hey, can I just make a quick comment back on the sure. um, the retirement piece with your wife? Sure. And this is for everybody out there. You know, I love to say that, you know, most of society is on this unconscious journey to arrive at death safely. And what I mean by that <laughs> is, you know, we get into this routine where it just, we live life and days and weeks and months and years go by. And then all of a sudden it's all bias. And we're like, gosh, you know, where did that go? And did I accomplish what I wanted to accomplish? And I teach a thing in my coaching program called blueprinting live your life by design, not by default. And I think most everybody can work their way into that kind of life with a conscious effort. One of my favorite all time books is Napoleon Hill's. You'll think and grow rich. Think and grow rich, sure. And it's and we're in a in a profession where you know people want to get to a retirement, which I hate that term. Like I'm going to do all this, spend all this time doing things I don't love to do, so I get to spend a little bit of time doing the thing I love to do when I'm the oldest and I'm not as healthy as I can be. So I challenge people to say, you know, if you start moving in that direction, you can't change it overnight, but you can get there a lot faster than you think. And just to accept. This is my life. I don't love it, but I don't hate it. That's that unconscious journey, you know, to death.
1: Quite interesting. Today in confirming my priors, I have Ron Carson on telling me everything that I believe in and me just nodding my head vigorously in <laughs> in a sense. Um so so let me ask you a question. You you referenced earlier, um, That you don't usually use debt. Let's talk about a subject that's a little controversial: the Paycheck Protection Program. I know your firm participated in this. My firm participated in it. Tell us where you are with your PPP loan, and I'll I'll do the reveal on ours. Also,
2: yeah. So Barry, when this, so we we also have another business. It's an events business that um, really for financial advisors. We've been doing this for. Uh, going back to 1993, and we had a we had a um, we had an event we canceled in Vegas. It, it hit it hit our company to the tune of four million almost four million dollars. Um, we had 80 other events that we canceled around the country, and we have we have a lot of people that work in the events business, and there was nothing to do. And so, you know, when we when we looked at our at Carson Group, our RIA doesn't need it, right? But our events business needed it. When we have a transformation business that needed it, and we also are building technology. And, you know, just with the uncertainty around, at one point, you know, our AUM had quite the dip, as everybody did. And Mm -hmm. we are like, we're going to, you know, before the Paycheck Protection Program came out, um, we were going to have to lay off, you know, a fair number of people. And we probably would have hired them back at some point and and but not yet this year. And so the whole purpose of that program, as the government said, was to keep people employed that we otherwise would not have kept employed, you know, through the through the downturn. And, you know, there's been a lot of pot shots. There's some gentlemen who I've never met back east, doesn't know me, doesn't know our business. And he's trying to shame us into taking it. And I like, you know, I'd like for you to meet with these families, um, right. that, that, you know, have, have a, continue to have a good job. And I want you to tell them why they shouldn't have gotten that benefit. Um, and so we take, we took it. We thought it was a good program. Uh, we, by the way, we helped a lot of our, our business owner clients. I think Nebraska, uh, at huh. least at one point had the highest t- a success rate relative to our population of anybody, and we had a big hand in that because you know Jamie Hopkins, who uh, works at Carson, really was on top of the CARES Act and really had all of our advisors very well educated on it. You know, the second there was action could actually be taken, and that you know indirectly what I was talking about earlier, being super proactive, you know, with our with our relationships, thinking about things that you know a lot of people aren't thinking about.
1: Huh. I could tell pretty much the exact same story about the non-advisor-related uh, businesses and our our thought process, my thought process in this has evolved.
2: Yeah, and this is the pot shots where, oh, you're taking money from somebody else. And again, I want to know, these people taking the shots, why is one family's employment more important than another family's employment? You know, that's really what they're saying is, we we want to pick and choose, you know the fan the fan, and all these are people making less than a hundred thousand dollars a year. By, Barry, by the rules, the saying, rules say that the rules. Those are rules. If we are right. faced with another dilemma this fall. We have um, we have you know how this works. We contractually committed for a large conference this fall in Omaha. We've got five hundred hotel rooms that we're on the hook for because social distancing. We don't have enough room to bring people in. And actually consume all those rooms. So guess who gets to write a check for that?
1: It's amazing so, to think that, and it's that's before this the second wave comes in. What we're dealing with today, and especially along the Sun Belt, has been a spike in infections. That's still part of that first wave. This this isn't even the second wave.
2: Yeah, I don't think this thing is done by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I think it could. I think it should have been handled a lot differently. I think we should have quarantined those that were high risk. But, you know, to put a, to do what we did to our economy, you know, and could, of course, you know, Monday morning, Monday morning, quarterbacking sure. is great. Um, right. but, and, and hey, our leaders, this was an unknown. You know, and we still don't know, you know, the full ramifications of the of how this will impact our society for many years to come.
1: If you look at places like Germany and Switzerland and New Zealand, they seem to have come up with the right balance They were very aggressive, not only with quarantining, but with testing and contact tracing. And our numbers are still, you know, not going down the way they should. At least the mortality rate has improved. The number of people who are dying from this is, you know, it's ticking up more slowly than it was. It's not accelerating. But it certainly seems like more and more people continue to get infected uh, every day, especially if you back out the early states, back out Washington State, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, the rest of the country ain't looking so hot these days. I agree. I mean, we've been fortunate in Nebraska. um,
2: And, you know, we got, I still go up to our family farm pretty much every weekend. And that whole county up there has five cases. I mean, and you've got to drive, you know, two miles to see another person. So it's been nice having... Yeah, we've been we we social distance our whole lives, when we're up there. Uh, we didn't even know what we were doing.
1: <laughs> that, so. That's right. But before we get to a speed round, there's a couple of questions I missed during the broadcast portion that I have to ask you. One of which is, what's a day in the life of Ron Carson look like? How do you spend your time every day? So I get up super early. I typically um, get up. Somewhere between four
2: and four thirty in the morning. Um, I love my morning coffee, so I get my coffee, put the dogs out, get my coffee. I catch, I read. I love to read. I read, I think, I meditate. I do a little bit of breath work, um, and then I work out. Um, and then I move into you know I've got meetings, um, per, you know pretty much you know throughout throughout the day. Um, And then the evening is, I, I'm so lucky I have my kids. I have one daughter that lives five minutes north of me, another daughter that lives four minutes west of me. I have a grandchild. I have another one on the way. It's got a son who just graduated. He lives about 15 minutes east of us. And so, you know, we're spending time with family, and, uh, and, and I'm normally sound asleep by 10 o'clock at night. So it's uh and I, and I got to tell you, I love, you know, I've got my life to where I get to spend my life doing things I love to do, Barry, versus the things I have to do. And I can just hear it in your voice. I mean, you're, you're a man of, of passion. And, uh, and it just, you know, it, it's, it's, I get out every day, um, with a ton of enthusiasm. And I tell people, hey, if you start hitting the snooze button, and you hit up more than twice, something's wrong. You've got cancer developing on your enthusiasm. So, you know, reorganize your life and your day to where you can't wait to get out of bed and and get started with
1: the day. I totally agree, and I'm gonna horrify you a little bit. Snooze button, if you're still using an alarm clock, you need to change your lifestyle. But that's a whole (laughs) nother conversation. Well, Um, I use
2: the phone metaphorically as my alarm clock, (laughs) my iPhone, yeah.
1: I'm fond of saying this podcast is the most fun I have all week, but it's a pretty high steady state. This is, this is just the, the peak of it. Um, and speaking of podcasts, tell me about the Framework podcast. Is this a new venture for you guys? What, what are you doing with that?
2: It is brand new. Jamie Hopkins, um, who joined us you know, about a year and a half ago, uh, is running that. And Barry, there's so many podcasts out there. That it's like, oh my gosh, there's really room for another podcast? And he's done such a great uh, job with it. You know, he's had really an eclectic group. We just had Ashton Kucher on, who um, Jeannie and I got to know Ashton and Mila through um, our, we belong to a thing called the Reserve out in Napa Valley. And his mm-hmm. technology knowledge, and they're very much philanthropists. We had just had them on talking about Thorn, you know, their, their um, company and technology about, you know, stopping you know, child sex trafficking, but then also he's a tech genius. And then all the way over to Tyrone Ross, you know, very successful, um,
1: you know, Love Tyrone.
2: advisor and he like, and I'm listening to his podcast and I'm going, man, I learned some stuff I didn't know. And, uh, and it's, and he had his, you know, Jamie was playing with Michael Phelps and had his, his coach on, and, and I learned something there. It's like they never took a day off for five years in training where everybody says, oh, you need to take time off to rest. So, it, yeah, Framework has been awesome. It's not around financial services. It's around interesting topics, and uh, Jamie's getting getting a pretty decent following fairly fast
1: with it. I love that. I love that. And then the last thing I want to ask you before we get to the speed round is about your philanthropic efforts. I know you and your wife have a number of different projects underway. Tell us what you do when you want to spread some some happiness and some inspiration for people.
2: Yeah, so we decided early on that we weren't going to leave our kids much money. I've seen just the flip side of that and how awful it can be. And by the way, our kids have celebrated it I mean, with pride. You know, they know they're going to I'll take a quote from Warren Buffett. We're going to give our kids enough they can do anything, but not so much they can do nothing. And the rest (laughs) is going to our charitable foundation. And Jeannie and I are like, well, let's be giving it away while we're alive. And we started a foundation called Dreamweaver where we do end-of-life dreams for the terminally ill, financially unfortunate um, elderly that's been tremendous. We've, we're now funding some projects in the Dominican Republic around coral restoration. Anybody that wants to know more about coral, there's a great Netflix documentary called Chasing Coral but it's a crisis in our ability to feed the world. Uh Carson, we have um three schools in Africa that we're feeding. We're we're help, we're involved with Scott Harrison's Charity Water. Um we're giving, you know, over 1200 people a day, you know, fresh water from from wells we've driven. Uh, but we're just getting started, Barry. I mean, we, as an organization, um, really want to have impact, and and we're looking for more and more ways, you know, to, to to help people. And I personally believe private enterprise can do a much better job than the government can, you know, in figuring out who needs it and being very efficient in trying to deliver you know needs um, for causes that that uh, can can very efficiently invest
1: it. Quite interesting. So let's jump to our speed rounds although we should feel no time pressure. You can answer these um, as quickly or not as you like. You, you mentioned the Netflix documentary about Coral. What are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime video. What are you podcasting, listening to, et cetera?
2: I love Joe Rogan. so I listen to his podcast uh, all the time. Uh, with our kids being out of the house, Jeannie and I, we just got through watching the Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. So that was good. fantastic. So good. And we're good. Both, um, avid readers, and I'm reading um, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is really, really good right now. Um, uh, Essentialism, which is another great book uh, that I love. And um, and I I spent a lot of time going on walks and hikes. I think most high-functioning, creative people can – can gain a lot by just going and not having anything, just letting your mind go to wherever it goes. And um, Carson Partners was actually born on a hike. I'm I'm trying to summit all of the 14,000 foot peaks in the U.S. Barry, and a lot of them I've done alone. I've been 57. I have 12 left. I got to get a knee replacement before I can finish out. But some of my best ideas have come on these on these you know several day mountain expeditions you know that I've gone on. You've
1: done 57, 14,000 foot peaks. Is that yeah. what I heard you say? Yeah. And it only cost you one knee? That's a fair trade. <laughs> well, cost me both, but I got to get the other one fixed soon here. COVID, I was supposed to have it
2: done in March, but COVID hit, and that didn't happen.
1: So let's talk about your mentors. Who influenced your career? Who helped make you into the Ron Carson we know today? My mom and dad, my mom um, growing up, my dad was
2: a hard worker, hard farming, farmer. Uh, my mom, though, she was, Ronnie, you can do anything you want to do. I mean, this is being a kid. She had me convinced if I wanted to be the president of the United States, I was going to be it. And and, uh, and she encouraged me on any, any businesses that I ever wanted to do or start. And she was my partner um, a lot of times. She passed away um, five years ago, Mother's Day. And then I, um, uh, got to know Warren Buffett here in town back when I was a business editor and, and his nephew was in a YPO forum with me and, you know, just his, his, you know, wisdom and advice. And, and then there's a gentleman here in Omaha, you know, self-made million, billionaire, you know, Howard Hawks, who really started his sure. business later in life. Um, just really gave me a lot of great advice growing up. Uh, in the business and, but ultimately it's my partners too in my, my coaching group. I mean, you, if you have an open mind and you take the philosophy that, you know, the older I get, the less I know, and I don't defend what I know and what I'm comfortable with, but embrace the unknown, you will learn something new every single day of your life. And a lot of it's very useful. I call it useful, cool and useful information. Cool information. Um, as long as you don't think you've arrived or you figured it all out, I love that. There's a poster with an ape scratching his head. It says, "As soon as I figured out all the answers, they changed all the questions." And that's so true. You know, the the uh, the questions are changing rapidly.
1: So one of these days, I'm going to have to lean on a favor, and and my collection of podcasts will be incomplete uh, until I get Warren Buffett uh, under my or or Charlie Munger under my belt. Uh, I don't suspect that's going to happen anytime soon, given the lockdown. I think I sent them a snail mail about five years ago, and I never heard back from them. But it was still early days. I should probably follow up again. You mentioned a couple of books earlier that you're reading now. What about books you recommend to people who say, hey, I want to learn more about investing, finance, the economy? What books do you recommend for those people?
2: You know, I really have never read any of those books. Very to tell you really? the truth, because that's amazing. Here's, and here's here's why. I mean, I've read I've read a handful of them, but I'm a little different in my beliefs. And that is this: is that most people are trying to find a silver bullet of investing, and they're just it doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. and the the silver bullet is is that if you stick to a plan and you get your risk budget right. You can be successful with deep value. You can be successful with momentum growth. You can be successful with passive. You can be successful with ETFs, with with mutual funds. But as soon as you start reading this book, and then you read that book, and then you get distracted, and you think that you've got something that's a black box, I mean, trying to have it happen in a hurry, Barry, just doesn't happen. And my nearly 40 years in this business, the clients that have followed a plan, not gotten emotional, they got more wealth than they could possibly spend in 10 lifetimes. But I've had those clients that are always chasing the hot dot or they read this or that book. Right. I mean, I like um, uh, unexpected returns, um, uh, you know, the, the value investor, um, I mean, I've probably read you know 20 books over the years, but I, I really hesitate to give a book to say this is this is really what you Rich, what you really ought to follow because it's the consumer behavior that's going to drive their success, not what the market does or when not not what investment philosophy they have.
1: So just recommend Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, and that'll scare them off everything else. Um, <laughs> So, so what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who, who came to you and said, hey, I'm thinking about a career in finance? What would you tell them?
2: I had this conversation yesterday, and I try to have them um, uh, any day I can because I'm late tan. I have kids reach out to me all the time. And I tell them this is the, the best time to get into financial service. I said, you don't realize it, but you've won five Powerballs. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, let's just, let's just count them up here. First of all, you're a mammal. Do you know what the odds are for you to be a mammal? And then you're a human. And then you're in the United States of America. In financial services, if you choose, at the most disruptive time possible, every single relationship is in play because consumers are starting to look and say, am I getting a return on the investment I'm making? And I, and I and I give them the stats that we're going to have a huge capacity issue because we are we don't have enough financial advisor. And it couldn't be a more powerful, powerful tailwind. But do it right. Don't go to the wires. Don't go to the brokers. Go find an RIA that really is mission-focused, that's not building it to sell it, that is um, really about uh, being a consumer advocate, and you will do incredibly well. And by the way, When you prove your worth, negotiate a way to participate in equity, you know, and that way, that way you won't have to make, don't, don't move around a lot. you know, find a place, stick with it and, and don't be afraid to ask, you know, for equity at some point, you know, in the, in your relationship.
1: Good answer. And now our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew back in 1983 when you were first getting started?
2: i wish i knew
1: my own advice because early on i was doing
2: commodity futures i mean this the stuff i was doing on my own account barry and i mean i actually had cattle delivered to me you know i never realized that a paper contract could turn into real cattle and i went through that um, i uh if someone would have said ron american businesses are like a yo-yo going up a flight of stairs you know the market's going to fluctuate you know short term I love what Buffett says. He says, our markets are capital re- relocation centers. They re- relocate wealth from the inpatient to the patient. And, I, and my own take on that is they relocate wealth from those that have a plan, from those that don't have a plan. And I wish earlier I would have figured that out for myself so I could then apply that to clients. And, uh, and investor behavior will dictate your success not what the market does, because you know, Barry, there's always places to make money regardless of what's going on in the market.
1: Thanks, Ron, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Ron Carson, founder and CEO of the Carson Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the previous 300 plus conversations we've done over the past, wow, six years. That's a long time. You can also find us at any of your favorite podcast hosts, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. You can check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Marufal is our audio engineer. Michael Patnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.